Dear brothers and sisters, you know what time it is. It's time for another episode of the podcast for my new book, Hopeless Romantic, The Untold History of Ethiopia. But before we get started, let's go ahead and start with prayer and we'll go ahead with uh, the program for today. Let's gather our thoughts. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Holy, holy, holy is your name, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, I ask you to give me wisdom. And we ask you to help us through this new journey that we have started. I ask you that what we discuss here today serves to heal many wounds that have emerged in the midst of the conflict in Ethiopia. Heavenly Father, I ask you to bring peace throughout this nation and the world. I ask you to be with the family and provide comfort for those who are in hardship. We call this in your name, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and in one God. Amen. All right. Well, I hope you guys are excited. Um, for the past couple of episodes, we did the introduction we went through the book uh, of why I decided to name it Hopeless Romantic. There were some questions about should it be hopeful, hopeless, da 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 da. We discussed all that. We got all that out of the way. And today's actually the, the, the first time that we're going to get into the midst of the actual book, right? So I hope you guys are, uh, you know, excited to really get into the to the actual history of the the book so far i was setting you guys up but now it's uh time to really get into it but before i forget um make sure that if you haven't gotten the book already get the book uh this podcast is really meant to uh be an addition to everything that you've read in the book so if you're not really reading the book you're losing a lot um out of it and the book could be found a hope uh, in amazon all you got to do is go to hopeless romantic um, and if you're not already doing so, make sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, my Instagram page is dmulina, and my Twitter is dawitmulina6. Um, and once again, I want to take time to thank my patrons who have supported me throughout uh, this process. Without you guys, I would not be able to do these podcasts. And if you want to support and become a patron, you can do so by going to patron.podbean.com forward slash dawitmulina. All right, so let's go ahead and get started. Chapter two, those were the days. Yes, they were. Yes, they were. I opened this book up and I really try to put myself inside the book for you. Sometimes when authors write, they uh, don't like to put themselves as the subject matter inside the book. They're kind of like a, a third person like uh, witnessing everything that's going on. But I really insert myself inside the text because I think, you know, that's how you relate with your readers. And, and I hope I did some justice. And I opened the book by playing on the metaphor of love. Of course, we've been talking. This book is about love. You got to be a hopeless romantic to enjoy the book. And uh, I opened the chapter with the state of euphoria that, you know, many married couples experience in the initial stages I'm not talking about those married couples that's been married for, you know, 30, 40 years that bicker like old 
couples. But I'm talking about the initial stages, you know, the lovey-dovey. Like, they just, I want to just look at you all day. You know, the joyous memories they build during the inception. And I argue that these initial stages will serve them as reminders for why they married their partner to begin with during the inevitable tumultuous period that they're going to experience later on. I don't know. Like, I am kind of weird, and I like to watch, like, a lot of reality TV shows. Don't judge. Don't judge me. I don't judge you. Don't judge me. And in some of these reality TV shows that I watch, there's always, you know, the therapist trying to, like, heal uh, married couples, right? Like, my one of my favorite is uh, Married Boot Camp. And they're like, I can't do this no more. I got to leave the marriage. And then, um, you know, the therapist is like, well, tell me, tell me about why you married her to begin with. And then, you know, the guy or the girl, they, they sit back and they're like, well, you know, back in the day, like we were like best friends and we used to laugh and we used to do this. And immediately you could see their facial experience, uh, facial expressions changing because, you know, thinking about the good old days is, is like, oh, yeah, like we have potential to be like this. Like our love has potential to be like it used to be before. And then they are like, what happened to us? Right. Like, how come we can't go back to that place? And I think it's important to think about the good old days now, if you haven't heard to share some good news in these dark days. There's a lot of bad news around. But your boy just got engaged. I sure it did. I sure it did. Maybe you saw it on social media. Uh, you know, I posted a little something, something. You know what I'm saying? I had to show you all how I guess down. And uh, thank God I, I got really, really lucky with a beautiful girl. Um, she was born here, but she's Ethiopian and, and, uh, she serves the church in Atlanta. Um, she wants to be on the low. She's not the type of person that, you know, wants to be front and center. So she's still getting, uh, used to acclimated to the whole, you know, uh, getting at the center of attention thing. She really doesn't like that, but, you know, she's a great gal. And, and, uh, right after we got engaged, we just couldn't stop looking at each other and, and like everything we were doing, we just smile and giggle because, you know, we, we kind of love. Yes, 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 it's true. I'm in love. And maybe some of the listeners out there are like, what is this guy doing? We never heard him talk like this. It's because I'm in love, people. Yes, I am. And it's like everything that we do, it's, it's just fun. And I'm glad we're doing this because, again... Um, I think like later on when I know I'm a mess up and I make her mad, I could be like, remember, remember when I did this? Remember how I proposed? Remember this? Please forgive me. Right. And those moments that I called the La La Land in my book, like we create memories and, and it's not just like random things that don't matter. They're memories that will help us later on the line. I bring this point up to help me set up the real point I want to tackle in this chapter, which is Ethiopia had an interesting story, right? Um, and unfortunately, 
like especially you know the past year or two we spent so many times like we were fighting with each other we're you know divided we're uh you know talking about ethnicity ethnic groups and all this stuff that we tend to forget like like we actually had a pretty good history like where you know people were genuinely happy and and uh we had something to offer and sometimes in the midst of the darkness while we're you know in a bad time it's important to kind of pause and look backwards and and remember the great history that we had um because that's gonna help us remember what we are fighting for sometimes i feel like people forgot they've been fighting for so long that that's kind of what they only know how to do, right? And they forget, like, oh yeah, we could be peaceful. It's not, it's not a problem. We can be peaceful. And you know, like I said in previous podcasts, we have a richer history than the simple stories that we usually hear about. Um, you know, the the traditional tales that we we're told when we we're younger. We really have a story that we can be proud of. And in this chapter, um, I I point to that history to help us remember guys like don't forget we, we are we have a great history like the la la land like we're you know and hopefully i'm hoping i'm a hopeless romantic right so i'm hoping that by remembering these events that occurred nearly two thousand years ago all of us could be like wow we can't lose this history like this is kind of important stuff to keep in mind for future generation. And it's worth um, unifying and saving this nation. With that being said, uh, let's go to the history. So what is this history? What is the history of Ethiopia like? Well, I start with the name Ethiopia. And uh, based on the books that I've read, it's not exactly clear when the first initial like use of the word Ethiopia emerged or more importantly when the nation of Ethiopia emerged as a whole it's not exactly clear but one of the earliest mentions of its name is found in the Holy Bible now maybe you have noticed or you've heard people arguing but a lot of the Ethiopian Bible that references certain regions as Ethiopia is often rendered as Kush in many English Bibles. And I hear people saying like, oh, look at these Westerners erasing the history of Ethiopia from the Bible and they're doing this intentionally. And maybe, I mean, it's, it's difficult to say, but but in reality, um, as you probably know, that the majority of the Old Testament was written in, in Hebrew. And in, in the Hebrew Bible, there is a particular region near the Red Sea that is referred to as Cush. Now, again, the Bible is written in the Old Testament and certain regions were initially referred to as Cush. But as the Bible was being translated to Greek, the translators referred to the Hebrew region Cush as Ethiopis. So the reason why... Um, uh, some Bibles have the region as Kush and others have it as Ethiopia, like us Ethiopians, is because if you translate the Bible from the Greek source, where the regions are said to be Ethiopis, people render that as Ethiopia. But if people are translating from the Hebrew Bible, where they see the word Kush, 
they bring it into the English kush. Um, and, and, and that's uh, a linguistic uh, factor to keep in mind when we're talking about these things. Nonetheless, this has made many wonder why there was a need to change the designation for the same region from the Hebrew Kush to the Greek Ethiopians. I think that's a fair question. So why did the Greek translators change the name from Kush to, to the Greek Ethiopians from the, from the get-go? Well, some church fathers say that Ethiopia is actually named after the founder Ethiopis. Kind of makes sense, right? If there was a man named Ethiopis, then the region became known as Ethiopia. They reason that many of the biblical names are named after their founding fathers. So it's not like far-fetched idea if you think about it. Um, so it would make sense that Ethiopia is named after its founding father. Whatever the reason is, it's clear that the word Ethiopias, which is uh, where Ethiopia is derived from, is most definitely Greek. So whether there was a person named Ethiopis or it's just a linguistic factor, um, at the end of the day, it is uh, uh, from a Greek word. Now, uh, I remember once I went to a YouTube uh, channel and I made the statement. And someone else came right after me and they protested and said, no, 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 no. Ethiopia is indeed derived from a person and not the Greek word. And I was mm, surprised and I don't know. Uh, I mean, every to each his own. But the reality is it, it can very well be the fact that a person's name was derived from a Greek source as well. Um, and, and by the way, I'm spending a lot of time on this because... Believe it or not, people argue and, and message me and ask questions and stuff like that. So I just want to make sure I answer it here so I could say, hey, 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 hey. I addressed all that in the podcast. Make sure to go back and listen to the podcast. And if you can, be a patron. But anyway, that's for a different day. So I just, um, you know, just because someone may have existed in the previous times known as Ethiopies doesn't mean that that person's name was derived from Greek. So I personally do not see a need to reject the idea of a Greek origin for the name of Ethiopia, especially since the word can easily be derived from the Greek language. Um, the name Ethiopies results from the coupling of the Greek word atheo, which means burnt, and a piece meaning disc, wheel, or arch, giving a final uh, term of uh, Ethiopia as a burnt wheel, or, you know, the wheel referring to the face, so burnt face. You probably heard this before. Ethiopia in the Greek has the meaning of burnt face. This term is found is in Greek literature, such as Homer, Herodotus, and uh, and they use it describing African people in, in, in general, suggesting it was origin originally assigned to us by Westerners. As in, when they looked over to Africa, uh, Africans appeared to have a burnt face compared to them. Hence, hey, look at those Ethiopians, the burnt face. Because of this definition of Ethiopia being pejorative and some may argue that you know there's no need to embrace the name Ethiopia I've heard this especially in light of the current conflicts in Ethiopia and people are like how see Ethiopia means burnt face how can you embrace the name Ethiopia but as I 
stated in the book, don't judge me, but I actually, I actually like it. I like the definition. Here's why. First thing is, like, think about it. Ethiopia, although it was a term assigned to us by Westerners initially, our ancestors have since gone to embrace the name Ethiopia for close to two millennia. The earliest written document I was able to find of our ancestors embracing the name Ethiopia is one of the inscriptions believed to have been written on the Monumentum Adeltanium. And I've talked about this inscription on several platforms before to bring awareness of its prior existence because it contains remarkable information. The inscription is believed to have existed before King Caleb's era in the 16th century which means it was likely inscribed in the earlier part of the Aksumite kingdom. And in the inscription, the name Aethiopius is clearly indicated in Greek alphabets. From this, we can surmise two things. One, our ancestors embraced the term Ethiopia and were using it themselves. And secondly, more related with the current political environment, the kingdom of Aksum, was also referred to as Ethiopia by Ethiopians. I'll repeat that. The kingdom of Aksum was also referred to as Ethiopia by Ethiopians. This is key because uh, recently some people have tried to argue the kingdom of Aksum is somehow only related with present-day Aksum Ethiopia. And, you know, that's sad to hear and they continue to argue that the history can only be relatable to the people living in that specific region but mistaking Aksum Ethiopia for the kingdom of Aksum from the first millennium is tantamount to mistaking Roman Empire with Rome Italy but mm, I digress the point is the term Ethiopia was embraced and used by our ancestors, and thus, I think, we should embrace it too. By the way, it wasn't just our ancestors. Other Africans throughout the world embraced the term Ethiopia and were using it for themselves. The most notable is the Ethiopian regiments during the American Revolution in the 18th century. I was recently talking about this on a Twitter platform. This was a group composed of slaves in America who fought on the side of Great Britain after they were promised their freedom if they enlisted. But this Ethiopian regiment was not composed of ethnically Ethiopian people, but of black people. Yet, runaway slaves willingly joined this Ethiopian regiment hoping to get their freedom. The point is this. The name was not seen as pejorative. Had it been the slaves, would have never enlisted. Which reminds me, technically speaking, <laughs> our skins are not black. They're different shades of brown. And yet we embrace this term as well. We spent the past few years protesting black lives matter. To put it another way, your skin is not burnt just like your skin is not black. But as a, a society... We have come to embrace our blackness. So we should go on to embrace the name Ethiopia. And now to my second point. The term Ethiopia, as it appears from literature, 
may have been coined to refer to a wide range of people that happen to be black. As in, the term was not restrictive of ethnicity. It was like saying the black people whenever the term Ethiopia was being invoked. Because it wasn't restrictive, the term Ethiopian could be used to refer to the indigenous man living in Ethiopia and the black slaves living in America. In a way, the name Ethiopia united all black people under one umbrella across the world. This is why, when I think about the current political climate, if there was ever a name that can be applied to all of us, it would be Ethiopia. It includes the Amarinya, Tigrinya, Oromiya, Guraginya, and all the other language-speaking people. It's similar to how the Bible refers to the nation of Israel. The nation was made up of 12 tribes, which served like ethnic groups, but collectively they were known as Israelites. When it comes to us, we have of 80 ethnic groups, which we take pride in, but collectively we are Ethiopians. Rejecting the term Ethiopia is like rejecting being called black. More than anything, it unites us. This is why I like the term. Outside of the Bible and traditional teachings of the Ethiopian Orthodox Outer Church, it's hard to know like, where to start the discussion of the history of Ethiopia. Before the turn of the first century, there was a dynasty known as Daimat or usually you'll see it as DMT. Some historians <laughs> have criticized me for not including this kingdom in my book, but the problem is I don't really know what to say about it. Historians usually rely on written material to understand events that happened in the past, but for this Da'amat kingdom, which was before the Aksumai kingdom, by the way, we don't really have a lot of written material, so our knowledge of it, it's very limited. On the other hand, we have a significant amount of written material about the mighty Aksumite kingdom. The first historical mention of Aksum comes from the Peripolis of the Eritrean Sea. It was a trading guide of sort, which likely dates to the mid-first century A.D., and in it, the port of Adulis is mentioned. Now, if you don't know anything about Adulis, it's, it was a port that many uh, societies came at in order to do trade. It was right next to the, the uh, ocean. And this specific document is significant because it is, uh, well, it was a Greek document that described the navigation and trading routes from Egyptian ports along the coast of the Red Sea and others along Horn of Africa, the Persian Gulf, Arabian Sea, and the Indian Ocean, for example. This is important since it signals which nations Ethiopia was doing trade with. We must have been a great empire for all these different nations and all these different regions willing to come across to 
a duelist in order to do trade with the mighty Ethiopians. It's not only this. You probably have heard me saying um, the following in many platforms, but I have to keep saying it because I'm just shocked. The historical figure Mani from the 3rd century stated that the four greatest empires of the world were Rome, Persia, China, and Aksum. But <laughs> some modern-day historians had a hard time believing how an African nation like Aksum could be able to have such a rich history. People like Carlo Conti Rossini, by the way, remember this name, I'm going to get back to it, uh, spent time in the 1920s pondering over this issue. Eventually, he surmised the Aksum Empire emerged due to the migration of South Arabians. If you don't know about the South Arabian migration, essentially, it is believed at about the turn of the first century, South Arabians began to migrate to Ethiopia. All historians are in consensus that this migration did in fact take place. No problem here. But the historians like Rossini argued that the Aksumite Empire emerged as an empire only after the advent of the South Arabians. <laughs> historians like Edward Ullendorf, building on the theory of Rossini, go on to argue that even though the number of the South Arabians that came to Ethiopia was small, they were the ones who contributed to the large amount of the Ethiopian civilization. I'm not sure if you're picking it up by now, but what they're essentially saying is Africans were incapable of establishing a major empire like Aksum. And they reasoned that the only way a major empire like Aksum could have been founded is through the aid of the mighty South Arabians. In the book, I go on to question why so-called historians like Carlo Conti Rossini and Edward Ullendorf would make these suggestions. Now, I'm going to assume you probably have not heard these names before, but as we'll see in future chapters, they're considered to be the founding fathers of modern-day Ethiopian history. Think about that. The credit for establishing modern-day Ethiopian history is awarded not to Ethiopians, but Westerners. Not to mention, Carlo Conti Rossini was an Italian, but more on him later. Edward Ullendorf goes on to describe Ethiopians as being of medium stature, having a long face, a fairly straight and thin nose, extremely dark skin, woolly hair, and a rugged kind of beauty. And in one part, he, is, he goes on to state and he's surprised to learn that Ethiopians were smart, he says, and I quote, Yet everyone will agree that the Abyssinian is exceptionally intelligent, mentally agile, and extraordinarily eager to learn. His quick, his quick observation of knowledge is at times stupefying, but profoundity is not perhaps greatly esteemed. I bring all this to say. The same people that are awarded as being great Ethiopian historians appear to have written our history through the lens of racism. For this reason, I go on to argue, they make the shocking claim that Ethiopians were not reasonable or responsible for the emergence of Aksum Empire, but that the South Arabians were. 
The only thing more shocking than this is that the future Ethiopian historians like renowned historian Tadas Tamarat, relying on the writings of the Italian figure Carlo Conti Rossini, goes on to make the similar claim about the Aksum Empire. Recently, I've seen some Ethiopian figures go on YouTube and claim that we're the superior race when compared to the rest of Africa because our descendants, our ancestors, were South Arabian. I'm not sure if you recognize what this means, but essentially the insinuation is Africans are inferior to South Arabians and really the rest of the world. This goes back to what I was saying last time about Africans looking down on themselves. We really do have a negative image of ourselves. My problem with this theory of Saudi Arabians being the main force behind the Aksum Empire is that there is no evidence to back it up. Meaning the Western historian looked at the superior empire and simply assumed Africans could not have done it on their own because, well, Africans are inferior. On the other hand, there appears to be some archaeological evidence to suggest Ethiopians were indeed the founders of their own empire. David Philipson illustrates in his book, Foundations of an African Civilization, the various types of pottery that has been discovered from Aksumite Empire. Pottery can actually be helpful to help us understand this type of society that lived in the era. The techniques used in making pottery, like sini, for example, are actually skill sets passed down from one generation to the next. Thus, the unique features found in a particular set of pottery often points to a particular society. Pottery, which is uh, found in the northern region of Ethiopia, were known to be mostly small, modestly decorated, and a form suitable for using a preparation and consumption of food. Whereas the South Arabian pottery tend to be tall, flared mouth vessels, and if we were to accept this South Arabian society revolutionized life in Ethiopia, we would expect that Ethiopians were adopting the pottery making skills of the South Arabians. But most of the pottery discovered before and after the emergence of Aksum Empire are consistent with the pottery making skills from Northern Ethiopia. Considering the production of pottery was a significant part of life for the Ethiopians, the lack of influence in its production by South Arabians sheds doubt on Ulundar's theory. Namely, what was the exact impact of the South Arabian migration on the Ethiopian society? And if they had little to no major impact on improving quality of life in Ethiopia with things like the pottery production, why should we assume they had a major impact on the emergence of the kingdom? especially when there is no evidence to corroborate this theory. The point is, Ethiopia was a major kingdom. And as I will continue to talk about throughout this podcast, our history has been hijacked and stolen by Westerners because it was written through the lens of racism. I spent the past year trying to bring awareness to this issue I'm not sure how many people are waking up. We'll stop here for today and we'll pick up where we left off. And I hope you're following along again. If you have not gotten my book so far, I urge you to get it on Amazon so you can read along and listen to the podcast. 
If you're not already doing so, make sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter. And if you want to support, make sure to be a patron by going to patreon.podbean.com forward slash I'll see you guys.